Um, my name is James. For those that are here for the first time, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thank you for joining us in person. If you're watching online, thank you so much for doing so. It is a, a joy to be with you. We're heading into week three this week of our series that we've just started called Living and Loving Like Jesus in a Post-Christian World. And so uh, we've hit the first week looking at more of the background. We hit last week, we're looking at we are called to be adopted, looking at the, the two different realities of the heavenly reality and the physical reality that call, Christ calls us to live in both these spaces of, uh, of uh, experiencing his love and, and this, what it means to be a child of God. And then today we're looking at in Christ we are redeemed. So the primary text that we're looking at today is out of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So as we talk about this word redemption, it means a lot of things to different people. The word redeem or redemption has been used in many ways. If you think today, how do we use the word redeem? It's often the case of like you redeem a coupon or a voucher for something that you would give of going to Safeway and you can now redeem even those, I mean, I hate Safeway so much for these things. I don't know if anyone else feels that way about me. You see a price and then you have to get the app and it seems to never register, right? But you're trying to redeem these dumb little coupons. It seems like there's a far easier way to do that. Um, Or I don't know if I'm allowed to say bad things about church. I mean, this is going online. Maybe I'm not supposed to do that. I've only been doing this a little while. Um, I don't know, you get lawsuits or something for doing that. Who knows? Defamation of, of a store. Who knows? Um, or you get redemption of someone saying that, like, uh, I need to redeem myself. Or you can even say someone is irredeemable. That meaning that their character is so bad that they could never re- be redeemed. And I think the best usage, usage of the word redeem comes from one of the greatest films ever to be made, the Academy Award winning f- film that we'll, we'll show here a qu- quick clip. You know, Lloyd, just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. And totally redeem yourself! (laughs) (laughs) All right. You, You totally redeem yourself. You put your own life back together. You... That's the idea of the culture, that we can redeem ourselves, but we know that Scripture shows we can't actually do that. You know, there's a famous line in Shakespeare's Macbeth. We'll go from Dumb and Dumber to Macbeth, right? To just in the same category, I guess, of, of quality in the history of the arts. But in, in, in Shakespeare's Macbeth, there's this great line right after Lady Macbeth, after she's, they've killed the king, and she has that great line where she's saying, out damn spot, and she's trying to wash her hands of the guilt and the shame, and she's going crazy. She's trying to get the blood off of her hands, and, 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 and Macbeth turns to the doctor, and he sees she's in this, this insane place, and he says, canst thou not pluck from the memory of rooted sorrow, being this, this memory that's stuck within her of the shame and this guilt? And he says to the doctor, and with some sweet, oblivious antidote, Cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. And I love that line. He says, can't you just take that shame and that guilt that she feels for the sin that she's committed, and can't you just give her some sweet, oblivious antidote, something that she doesn't even know, it doesn't hurt, it's easy, and it'll take away the pain, take away the shame and the guilt of this great sin that's been committed. Doctor, can't you do that? Some easy way to just make it okay and make it go away. And the doctor turns to Macbeth and says, the patient must minister to himself. Right? I mean, the, the logic of that being, you must do it yourself. Because that's the ways of the world, that if someone's in a bad situation, the only hope we have is ourselves. We must redeem ourselves. But Scripture would say the opposite. We have no hope of redemption on our own. And so back again to Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In him we have redemption, that through his blood the forgiveness of sins 
in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood. So according to this passage, how do we receive this redemption? It says it's through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his shed blood. And what does this redemption look like, look like what it's saying here? And it's saying it's the forgiveness of sins. So in this case, redemption has to do with the forgiveness of sins, the, the paying off of the debt. And to what degree do we receive this redemption, this forgiveness of sins? And it says, to the degree of the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. That's pretty awesome. I'm going to hit this real hard because, man, I love this passage. And we're going to spend a lot more time looking at redeem today. But in short, the original Greek word for redeem basically just means to ransom. It's, it's to pay the debt of a slave so that they can be freed from bondage to slavery. Paying their debt so they can be free. So we're going to talk a lot more about this, but I just want to make sure we get the context. I mean, that's the basic meaning of redemption is to pay the debt, to ransom someone of the debt to slavery. And then in verse 7, again, he says, in Christ we have this. I know it was a long time ago, but last week we talked about that. That was in Christ, that we are in Christ, in this heavenly reality. Because of what Christ has done and because we are in him, we are now part of his body, part of his family. In Christ, we've been redeemed. We've been set free from this bondage. In this case, what kind of bondage is it? It's not bondage to an actual physical master, but it says it's bondage to sin. We are in slavery to sin and he has set us free. He has forgiven us from our sins, from the, the debt that is owed by us, and not just a little bit, but how much has he forgiven us? According to the riches of God's grace that he lavishes upon us. Not according to what we deserve, not according to the degree of our sin, not according to what we could even dare ask for, but according to the riches of God's grace. Now, the riches of God's grace. There is about 100 years ago, a guy named Rockefeller, you may have heard that name before, considered the wealthiest man in anything in the modern history. Uh, if you bring his, his fortune back then to the modern day, it would actually be worth more than Elon Musk and, and uh, Jeff Bezos combined, if you were to compare the, the modern day equivalent of what he was worth. His wealth was 5% of the GDP of America, right? This was insane back then. And while he was known for philanthropy, something that he did frequently. It never made a single dent in anything he did. The thing he was most fam or very famous for was he would give a dime to anyone that asked. In fact, he loved getting pictures taken of those. And you can see there's a, a couple pictures of that. He had so many of these pictures taken of him giving dimes to people. And now you say, well, that was a lot of money back then. Well, today, if you were to look at inflation, it's about a buck fifty. So J John Rockefeller, one of the greatest, wealthiest people in all history, worth hundreds of billions, every once in a while would give a buck fifty to somebody as a way of his incredible philanthropy. He did other stuff beyond that. He was not a bad person. But when John Rockefeller, worth hundreds of billions, gives a buck fifty to a homeless guy, is he giving according to his riches? No, he's giving out of his riches, but not according to. If he were to give according to, in the measure of his wealth, he'd be giving out billions of dollars. Does that make sense? That would be according to. He's giving from his wealth, but it's the tiniest, most minuscule amount. I mean, it was amazing. I heard he gave out like 35,000 dimes or something was something. But he did this all the time to people, even giving them to wealthy people. And so he did not give according, but from. But Paul says that God gives in his grace redemption according to God's riches. God's grace and forgiveness and, and paying our debts it's, it's not just enough. It doesn't just cover just barely enough of what we've done. 
but it is according to his inexhaustible treasure of his grace and his love. When God gives according to his riches, it's beyond anything of comprehension because it comes from God and his riches. And then it goes on to say, though, according to his riches, that he lavishes upon us. In verse 7 again, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavishes upon us. I love this language. Paul is just caught up in how insanely good God is and how amazing his grace is. And so not only, as we talked about last week, do we get every spiritual blessing that we talked about, and we get sonship, we get adoption, that we're chosen. Now we have redemption. All our debts get paid and to the measure of God's insane riches of grace. But now he adds to it that God lavishes this grace and forgiveness upon us. Now the Greek word for lavish, it doesn't just mean to abound, it means to superabound. To have more than enough, to abound richly is in the definition, to overflow, to not just meet the cup, but to pour over the cup. And these words are chosen carefully by Paul. Paul is saying God's insane grace towards Christians is not just enough. It's according to his riches. It is lavished upon us. It is not abundant grace. It is super abundant grace, he's saying. It is overflowing. It is so much over the top. It is extravagant, almost obscene in how over the top it is. And so the other day I was Googling out of curiosity, what, what is extravagant by the world's standards today? And one of the first pictures that came up was this thing right here. So this this gold-colored gold boat. Now, this is a boat called History Supreme. I don't know if you've heard of this before. I was blown away. It's the most expensive item ever built for any individual. It is a Malaysian tycoon, who owns like the Shangri-La Hotels, spent four and a half billion dollars building this thing. It's three times the cost of the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, the tallest building ever built. It's, uh, it's one-fifth the size of other priced mega yachts, but yet it's many times the price of boats that are infinitely larger than it. And the reason it's so expensive is it's made from 220,000 pounds of gold and platinum. Even the anchor is made of gold. That's not just gold paint. In, in the bedroom, it says that one of the walls is entirely made of meteorites. Right? It's just insane. He has a, t a Tyrannosaurus Rex statue in the main bedroom of his boat. Right? I mean, if I were to think about this, it seems like something, if it wasn't real, that you would see uh, by, like, Dr. Evil while petting a cat, which would be riding this boat. If you guys have seen Austin Powers with a little pinky ring on his finger. Like, this seems almost like just some caricature. This is so extravagant and ridiculous, so unnecessary, so over the top. And I was just thinking that God lavishes his grace on us super abundantly. Way beyond whatever is needed. You don't need anything like that. The guy that built that is the same one also that made a $15 million iPhone just covered in gold and diamonds. Just ridiculous. But God goes way beyond whatever is needed when he gives us his grace and his redemption. It's overflowing. It's extravagant. It's super abundant grace that not just pays off our debts and sets us free to be his children, but brings us very into the family of God, completely filled with the righteousness of Christ. Now, we're going to swing back around to redemption in a minute, but I quickly want to kind of finish this paragraph as we, before we get back to it and get the context. And so in this passage, he goes on to say after this verse, in verse 8, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, 
to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So with all his infinite wisdom and understanding that he pours upon us, Paul says that God makes known to them the mystery of his will. Now, that language is very kind of weird to us, but very specific to the Ephesians church. This idea of mystery, it's a word he uses six times in the letter of Ephesians. And the reason why is because in Ephesus, as well as other parts of Rome, but specifically in Ephesus, mystery cults were some of the most um, common forms of cultic activity and demonic activity at the time. A mystery cult was uh, ways they would serve all these different goddesses. I mean, some look like Artemis, but Dionysus and all these other weird gods. And they would do it, was, it was kind of like um, Freemasonry, but on steroids, right? That if you know anything about the Freemasons, that there was these secretive rituals that you would do, and you'd try and get higher and higher and higher. And the higher you would go with secrets and knowledge, they would give you more secrets and, and greater knowledge and greater secrets. And so many of the rites were very demonic, and so many of them were very sexual and other stuff they had to do. But the more you did, the more inner sanctum you got of the knowledge and trying to get knowledge that would give you power over others. And so mystery cults were huge of wanting to have mystery. And so Paul is, is kind of tantalizing them with this language that Christ has revealed to us the mystery that's been unknown since the ages. When he says that, although he's not going to give the full answer to what it is until chapter 3, he's really just drawing them in. Because when he says that, the, the original readers would be, or listeners would be like, so what's the mystery? What's the mystery? Because that's the way their brain is wired of wanting to know the mysteries and the secrets. And so Paul's playing on that language here. And he says that God has made known the mystery according to his will and his pleasure in Christ. So Christ reveals the mystery. And he's going to, again, it's going to be perfectly spelled out in chapter 3 when we get there. But in verse 10, he's going to disclose it. He says, the great mystery hidden for ages and now revealed in Christ is that God wants to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Central to this is what we're going to talk about much more going forward in this letter, but is that he wants to address the division between Jews and Gentiles, but it's way beyond that. Because he wants to bring all things under Christ in perfect unity. Remember last week we talked about the spiritual reality, the heavenly reality, and the physical reality, the things of earth, the things that are of, of heaven. He wants to bring all things, all things in heaven, all things on earth, and bring them into unity under Christ, into peace and unity. He's literally saying all things will come to unity. Everything that was ruined by the fall will come back again into perfect unity. And when will this happen? He says in the fullness of time. When God determines the timing is right. That ultimately God is going to bring all things back together in peace and unity. And he's working towards that goal. Paul talks about this again in Romans in chapter 8 verse 23 when he says this. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Creation, literally, the trees, everything is groaning. What are they groaning for? 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We are waiting along with creation for the final adoption to take place, for ultimate redemption. Here, Paul kind of follows Jesus' lead, and and he talks about the now but not yet kingdom of God. That just means that we receive it in part when we accept Christ, but the ultimate reality of adoption we're still waiting on when Jesus returns, that redemption is here and we receive it, but the fullness of all things being redeemed, not just our sin, but all sin, all brokenness, not just my pain, but all pain, not just death, but all death is redeemed, will come with the return of Christ. And so last week we saw that we are adopted as his children. 
But the full inheritance of that adoption doesn't actually happen until Christ returns. So in here in chapter 1, verse 7, we see that we are redeemed already, but the fullness of that redemption does not happen until Christ returns. Now we're going to talk much more about Christ uniting all things in chapters 2 and 3, because he hits this over and over and over again. But here in this passage, Paul is giving them a preview of where Christ is going, of where this whole story of God in the universe and where it's heading. He isn't trying to just get a bunch of people to follow some religion or just obey him or do some random stuff. But ultimately, God's longing is that all things in heaven and on earth, all people, all creation, are united under Christ and redeemed and restored the way he wanted them to be. He's giving his vision for creation. The restoration of all things. To, to experience life the way he intended it to be in the garden. And that God is moving back towards that place and restoring all things on heaven and earth. The way he's longed for it to be since the beginning. That everything comes back together under Christ. All things are under unity and peace and joy. And, and just a side note here. I mean, this is why it's passages like this and so much else of scripture is why it baffles me while some Christians will, will kind of start evangelism topics. And they start off talking about people being sinners that are, that are condemned to hell as a starting place. Which it's, it's not that, that sin isn't real, that hell isn't real, but as a starting place. Because nowhere in Scripture does anyone start the gospel in that way. Nowhere does Jesus communicate it that way to someone who doesn't know him. Instead, look at where Paul starts. He doesn't just start at creation. He starts before the foundation of the world. He starts before creation, before time even existed, that in the very beginning, before creation existed, before eternity existed, in the past, God chose you to be part of his family. That before there was a world or earth or anything else, God's longing on his heart was for us to be with him as his family, to experience life with him, life with one another, and experience the joy of creation. That was God's longing from the beginning. Amen. And when I talk to people about Jesus, that's where I start. Not, you're a sinner dying and going to hell, but no, this is God's longing to be the people that he created you for. From the beginning, he wasn't just trying to get angry sinners and upset people into some paradise in the sky. God's longing from the very beginning has to be in fellowship with the people he created to enjoy him and enjoy the world. And it's that thing that's in people's heart that cries out for God. It's not there by accident. It's there because that's what we were created for. That's the place Paul starts. It's where we should start. And so Paul says, yes, we're slaves to sin. Yes. In chapter 2, he's going to say, we are children of wrath. We've been slaves to sin. We've been following Satan. But Christ came to redeem us. It began when Christ first comes to earth with his life and his death and his resurrection to bring peace to the chaos, to bring healing to the pain. And Christ is going to come again and ultimately restore all of creation and all of heaven to complete our redemption, as we're going to see in just a minute again. That's the gospel. That's the longing of God. The gospel is not that just I'm a sinner going to hell and one day if I, don't sin, if, I, if I try to avoid sin long enough, I'll get to go to some paradise in the sky if I say a little prayer. That is not the gospel but that God wants to restore all things in heaven and in earth into unity under Christ that we could experience his life and his love the way he intended for all of us to be. God is a God of redemption. And he's only getting started. The first act, when Jesus came, became human and died on the cross, 
That was act one, and that was pretty awesome. But the second act is going to be so much better. It's going to blow the first act out of the water when he comes again. And ultimately, all things are restored. This is our hope. It's in Christ alone. Our hope is not in our love or our ability to try and do it all perfectly or for our love and longing for him. We are fickle people and we fail. Our hope is in him and his love and longing for us that he is going to restore all things. Amen? So let's dive a little more into redemption because this stuff is so cool. So back again to verse 7. I'm going to keep hitting this because this thing is so good. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. So earlier we said that redemption means to ransom, to free a slave that was uh, by paying their ransom. Now, redemption is not a Christian word. It's not something that that is just Christianese in some way. It was a Roman word used to describe the process of paying the debt for a slave to be freed. Anywhere from about 20 to 30% of Romans' people in in the provinces were slaves at that point. And many churches were composed primarily of slaves or of freed slaves that had been redeemed in some way. And so the idea of slavery, when Paul's writing this, is not some theological concept. It's not an idea that he's talking about. Everyone knew what slavery was. It wasn't a metaphor. Everyone knew what redemption meant. Many hearing these words being read to them longed to be redeemed themselves because they were slaves while they were hearing this letter being written. I mean, think about that. Being a slave, reading or hearing this letter being read out in your church. That's crazy. And written by a guy who's in prison. Speaking of freedom in Christ and redemption from a guy who's on his death row in prison being written to a bunch of slaves. Just crazy. But Paul is not talking about that kind of redemption of physical slaves. Because here he speaks of redemption through the blood of Christ. And that is not a slavery to a physical master, but they are freed from slavery and bondage to their sin. Now, again, just another side thing here. I recognize, it, I want to give some background onto this going back, and I'm going to kind of explain what happened with slavery. But just as a reminder for us as a church, I know that many of us are mature, and some of us in this room have been Christians for 10, 20, 50, 70 years, some of us. And that's awesome. And as a pastor, I want to be able to minister and, and, and bring a depth that even the most mature Christians can engage with and, and, and be fed on and, and challenged. But also in this very same room, we have people who barely turn or barely become Christians. We have pre-believers who do not yet know Jesus. And so as a pastor, it's my responsibility also to make sure that, that we are able to reach out to those and speak and share stories in such a way from scripture that makes sense to those who have never opened a Bible before. So I'm going to regularly, you're going to hear me kind of retell stories that maybe you've heard since childhood, but I'm doing that because many people don't actually know these stories. So about 2000 years before this letter is written, the people of Israel, the Jews were slaves in Egypt. For 400 years, they were slaves in Egypt. And during that time, they were treated so harshly by the pharaohs of that point, and they cried out to God for redemption, to free them. And God gives them this promise, and it's found back in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. God says to the people of Israel who are slaves, says, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. So God says to them, I will redeem you. 
And then he brings these ten plagues upon them. Things like bringing locusts to eat all their food and and striking their animals down and turning the, the sun dark for a long period of time, turning all the water into blood and all these plagues. And Pharaoh refuses to listen, refuses to let the people go until finally the last plague is is the Passover where he says his spirit's going to come and put to death every firstborn child of every family in the land. But if they obey God, all they have to do is they have to kill a lamb, take the blood of that lamb and paint it on the doors of their home. And when they do that, the spirit of God will pass over the home because of the blood of the lamb. They will pass over the homes of those who have the blood. And if they do, they will be saved. And that language becomes the very basis of so much of the examples that Jesus uses and Paul uses going forward. That on Passover, Jesus, or the Spirit, passed over the homes in obedience, had the blood of the Lamb that saved them. That's why he uses so much emphasis on blood. It's it's the entire way that God uses this picture all the way back to the Old Testament thousands of years before. And so their redemption, the problem of that point, when Pharaoh releases them the next day, that's great, but it's only temporary. 800 years later, they all go back into slavery again because of their disobedience. So now Jesus is our Passover lamb, is the language we see in Scripture. Jesus gives his life for us. He takes away our guilt to wash away our sin. John says it beautifully in John chapter 1, verse 29. It says, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how Jesus was referred to. The Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb. So here in Ephesians, Paul is going to make it crystal clear that the Ephesians are in bondage, not to Egypt, not to masters, but to the slaves. They are slaves of the ways of the world, is the way he describes it in chapter 2. They are slaves to sin and to Satan, he'll describe it. They are deserving of wrath because of it. So Jesus has come to redeem his people, to pay for their sin through becoming the Passover lamb for them. He has offered forgiveness through his blood, redemption through his blood. Now, a few other passages that state this. Hebrews 9.15 says this, That is why Jesus is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the internal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of their sins. Christ died to set them free. He ransomed them. He redeemed them. They had committed under that first covenant. Or Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, You were dead because of your sins, and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. So because of sin, you were dead and deserving of death. Then God made you alive in Christ, for he forgave all our sin. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away. How? By nailing it to the cross. He redeemed us, he paid the ransom, and he paid the debts that we are free to be with Christ. Or Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says, The Son of Man, Jesus, came to give His life as a ransom for many. And so many others. Last week we looked at adoption, which was amazing, but this is how we are adopted. The reason we can be adopted is because He redeemed us. He paid the debt and He brought us into His family. So Jesus comes to give his life as a ransom for us, to redeem us, and that's how we're adopted. He shed his blood on the cross so we can be united in Christ, so we can be adopted as part of his family. No longer are we slaves of sin and brokenness and fear because he has paid the price and paid for us. 
Now, if you're listening to this here online and you're not yet following Jesus, maybe you're saying, you know, I'm not in bondage. I'm a good person. Sure, I sin sometimes. I'm not perfect, but, but no good God could ever judge me because I'm a decent person. No good God would ever judge me for that. I'm not evil like Ted Bundy. I don't hurt people. I'm not hurting children. I'm not a murderer. God could never judge me for such things. But you see, that's the problem. You're comparing yourself to others. You're using some arbitrary worldly comparison example as a standard, and it's completely arbitrary based upon your own conscience. You know, I've been a missionary. We just moved back to America a couple years ago. It'll be two years this November. Um, And spent years working overseas as a missionary, most of our life since I was 17. And I spent many, many years working amongst hardened gangsters, people who are serial rapists and serial murderers, very, very hardcore criminals. It was amazing sometimes working with these guys. I, they would be talking about what they're doing. We'd talk about some of this stuff. They'd go, well, I'm not that bad. And they're like, I don't understand. I don't think I'm a slave. And they'd say, because, man, you should get to know so-and-so. That's a really bad dude. And that's a guy who literally is a serial murderer and a rapist comparing himself to another dude and saying, well, I'm not really that bad because you should get to know this guy. Right? So we all can compare. And they would justify their behavior saying, well, I'm not as bad as that dude. Max Lucado has an awesome story about this in his book called Traveling Light. He writes about how we can say, you know, I'm not perfect, but God could never judge me for those things. And he says, someone could say, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most folks. I mean, I've led a good life. I I don't break the rules. I don't break hearts. I help people. He says, I like people. Compared to others, I think I could say I'm a pretty righteous person, it'd be easy to say. He then says, I used to try that one on my mother. She'd, she'd tell me that my room wasn't clean, and then I'd ask her to go with me to go check out my brother's room. She said, his was always messier than mine. And I'd say, look at her room, i look at his room, go, see, look how clean my room is as we looked at my brother's room. But he says it never worked, because she would grab my hand and walk me down the hall to her room. When it came to tidy rooms, my mom was righteous. Her closet was perfect. Her bed was just right. Her bathroom was just right. Compared to hers, my room was, well, just wrong. She would show me her room and say, this is what I mean by clean. And God does the same. He points to himself and says, this is what I mean by righteous. The God of the universe sets the standard of what that is, not someone else who's worse than us. His righteousness is the standard, and by that standard, we are all wicked. We all fall short of God. And we are all deserving of wrath, and Christ is our only hope. And the amazing thing is God knows that, and he has given his life for us to pay the price. Because he wants more than anything for us to experience life in him. It's why he created the world, was to be with us. From the very beginning, before the foundation of the earth, it says he chose us that we could be his family. To become the people he created us to be, and so he paid the debt we could never pay. And not only did he create us, but then when we walked away from him, when we slapped him in the face and sinned and turned away to our own ways, he then pays the debt for our sin to bring us back again to him. He pays it twice. He creates us and he pays the debt. There's a story of a boy who lived alongside a large lake and he loved to build model boats and and to see and to float them on the water and 
Him and his dad spent months building the most intricate, beautiful, just this incredible large model boat that he could float into the water. And after months, they finally finished it. And every day he would take this boat down to the lakeside, this huge lake, and he floated along the riverside, or the, oh, sorry, the waterside, and just enjoyed doing it. He cherished this boat. And every day he'd take it down there and run alongside as it went along the lake. And then one day as he was floating this, this boat, his precious possession, a big gust of wind blew and it blew the, the boat out into the water and, and beyond his sight and he lost it. He spent the next weeks every day walking alongside the shores of the lake trying to find his boat that he couldn't find again. And then one day he was walking in town past a pawn shop and he saw his boat in the store window of a pawn shop. He runs in and tells the owner, he goes, that's my boat. I built that with my dad. And the owner says, well, some fisherman brought it to me. I had to pay for it. So if you want it, you can have it. But you'll have to buy it. And so the boy goes away and gets every side job he can get to try and mow lawns, do whatever he's got to do to get enough money. And finally, one day he gets the money available. He goes back to the store. He gives the money and he gets his boat back. And with joy and delight, he holds his boat and he says, you're mine twice now. Not only did I create you, but I bought you back again. I love that. That's what happens with redemption. Christ created us for loving fellowship with him, to be with him. And we turned away and, and ran away from him. And so he buys us back and pays the debt that we could never pay. We could never deliver ourselves. Chapter 2 says, says that we were dead in our sins. Dead people can't save themselves. But Christ paid our debt, and now we are free. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. And we're free to love him and love one another, free to be adopted into his family. And so if you do not know Jesus, if you're watching online, you're here now, and you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I beg you today, accept the love of this gift of grace from God and say yes to him this morning. The God who created you longs for you to know him, longs for you to experience his love, to be freed from guilt and shame and pain and hurt and walk with freedom of being his child. And one of the most incredible things about redemption, though, is that it's not just a one-time thing that Jesus did on the cross in some point in the past, but it's actually three different aspects of that redemption that we see in Scripture. And the first one is that passage we keep reading in Ephesians 1.7. It says this again, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. This is the most commonly stated aspect of, of redemption in the New Testament. That at the cross, Jesus shed his blood and paid for our sins. That this is a redemption that pays off our debt and forgiveness for sins. Many, many may have heard that and get that. But there's a second aspect to it that we find in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Where Peter says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile ways of life that you inherited from your fathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So they are redeemed from their futile or their empty ways of life by the blood of Christ that's been passed down to them. So Christ's sacrifice frees them, not just from their sin, but from a futile life, an empty way of living that goes nowhere. His redemption empowers us through the Holy Spirit to not live a futile life, to not live a pointless life void of meaning, but to live a life that has deep grace and life and joy, not death. That's filled with life that's filled with meaning and is not futile. That's what redemption does, that he empowers us to live a life in Christ, the life that he created us for. And then we get the third aspect, which is also found all over, but in Ephesians 1.13, we'll get to next week, 
He says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So you get the Holy Spirit as a seal the moment you believe. And it says that seal is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, here it is, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are redeemed initially, but the full redemption doesn't happen until Christ returns. Because the full redemption, Paul in chapter 4 verse 30 calls it the day of redemption. That's not just when my sins are redeemed, but when sin is wiped away. It's not just when my pain is lost, but when all pain is redeemed and is gone. It's not just when brokenness is redeemed, but all brokenness is over once and for all. All death and pain and corruption and disease and suffering, all of it is redeemed and goes away. That's what Christ has called us to, and that's amazing. So as we begin to wrap up this morning, I want to go one more time to Ephesians 1.7 and zero in on one particular aspect. It says, in Christ... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Do you get how amazing that is? In Christ, we have redemption through his blood that was shed for us. Our guilt, our sins, they're removed. That empty way of life, the futile way of living is gone. And to what degree? the riches of God's grace that he's lavished upon us. The riches of that $5 billion boat and all the wealth of Rockefeller and Musk and Bezos combined are but poor beggars compared to the riches of God's grace. God's grace is extravagant. It is over the top. It is almost obscene. It is so lavished upon. It is super abundant. He takes our empty life and our futile ways. He takes our sinful past, all the sins that were committed against us, all the stupid stuff we've done, everything we ever regret, all the sins, all of our brokenness and our pain, and he redeems it. Jesus pays the price, and he showers us with his love and grace beyond all comprehension. Do a quick exercise with me. This might be a little bit weird, and that's okay. It's okay to be weird sometimes. But if you could all just close your eyes for a second. Everyone, just close your eyes. Holy Spirit, right now, I pray that you would move and you would speak to us, Lord. Even if you're home, just close your eyes. And right now, with your eyes closed, imagine that God the Father is sitting on the chair right next to you. Just imagine. Try and visualize that God the Father is sitting on the chair right next to you. And he's looking right at you. He's right there, looking right at you. What is his posture? Think about it. Just visualize that. What expression is on his face as he looks at you? Now look in his eyes, if you can. Just imagine looking into the very eyes of God. What is he communicating with his eyes? Okay, we'll end the weirdness. Open your eyes. Now, 
For some of you, that was just a weird exercise and it meant nothing. But if you did that, and you experienced some kind of something shameful, or just immediately you felt fear or disgust or, or some way that you couldn't do that, you felt a distance, or there's some deep insecurity when you look at who God is, it, it means you don't understand redemption very well. You might have got nothing, I understand that, because it's a weird thing, but for many people doing that and encountering and trying to encounter God near them, it just brings fear because this idea of redemption we don't get, that He's lavished His grace upon us, that we serve this insanely gracious God whose love for you is greater than you could ever comprehend. And that's why Paul says, he says, in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance to the riches of God's grace that He lavishes upon us. That even if you've been walking in sin, sleeping with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or stuck in a porn cycle or hurting yourself or, or even hurting others, whatever it is, even then, well, yes, it should bring conviction. It should not produce shame because this God is pursuing you. His grace is rich and it is lavished upon us. You know, whenever I read this passage, the picture that always comes to my mind is Victoria Falls in Zambia, the largest waterfall in the world. Here's a photo of it. Victoria Falls is 300 feet tall, 350 feet tall, 5,600 feet wide. That's uh, twice as tall as Niagara Falls and three times as wide, the largest waterfall in the world. And when I think of the super abundant, lavish grace of God being poured out, I, I think like trying to grab a water bottle and fill it under the waterfall. Right, just instantly it's filled up and then billions of times more water is poured over the water far more than could ever imaginably be deserved. It's just showering down. It is lavished. It is extravagant. And I have personal experience with this. We took a team there to the waterfall and it's an amazing thing you can do. Put the next photo. You can go right to the waterfall's edge. It's called the devil's armchair. You sit right at the edge, six inches from the edge, and they'll hold your legs as they hang you over the edge, 350 feet down, the most powerful waterfall in the world. That's the picture of Sarah there on the right, and that's my teaching team there on the left. We're just right at the edge. There's just literally like six inches of a little tiny rock that separates you from going 350 feet over. And the, you feel the surge of the water pouring over you. I mean, it's power, and it's real, and you feel it. It's terrifying. This is what God's redemption is like. It pours over us. He lavishes it upon us. Can God deal with your brokenness? C can He handle whatever sins you've committed? Whatever transgressions? Can He handle the wrestles and the struggles you have with mental problems or, 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 or doubt or unbelief? Can He deal with our past and what we've done and what others have done to us? Can He redeem us of that? Obviously, yes. It's according to the riches of His grace that He's lavished, not our own. Can he deal with questions of gender identity or, or sexuality? Or if, is my sin and my brokenness too big for God? And that is insane to even think about. Because this is how big his grace is. It's like holding a red solo cup up to Niagara, up, up to uh, Victoria Falls. It floods over it. His grace is lavished upon us. It is extravagant, not just abundant, but super abundant. I get the worship team to come up now. Do you know this God whose grace is lavished upon us? Whose grace is more extravagant than a $5 billion yacht? And so this morning as we enter into worship, do you need to stand in the waterfall of this God's grace?
And as the worship begins, I would encourage you just to stand in His grace, in His mercy, and let it wash over you. If you've been walking in sin and feel dirty, just stand in the waterfall of God's grace and let His forgiveness confess to Him and let His forgiveness wash over you. Whatever's been done to you, you've done in the past, just let the riches of God's grace wash over you. If you felt distant from God and unable to connect, just stand in the waterfall of His grace and let it wash over you. And if you've never given your life to the Lord, here online, just confess to Him and say, Lord, I need you. I want your grace. I want your love. I want my debts paid and I want to experience this life. And this morning, right now, just say, Jesus, I give my life to you. We're entering to worship now. I encourage you to stand. I encourage you just to lift your hands up and just let His grace and His mercy just wash over you. If you want prayer, feel free to come forward. I'll be there. And if there's more than one, we'll have other people come forward for prayer. We'd love to pray. If you want to just come sit at the altar and just worship with God, but connect with Him right now. And again, I just want to say it. Sometimes we just get caught in our own place of doing our own things. There's no pressure here. But sometimes there's incredible value of just doing something different. I've talked about it before. Of getting out of your place of comfort zone and saying, Lord, I need you. I feel alone. I feel hurting. And God, I need your grace and I need your love.